We're going through the book of Hebrews. This is the second in a series. We're going to start at verse 3 through 9 of chapter 1, and then verse 9 of chapter 2. This is God's word. I'll read it for us. Let's give our full attention to this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as a name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Okay, and then one more verse, chapter 2, verse 9. We read, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is God's word so far. Thanks be to God. So from last week, starting at verse 3, this preacher, the author of this book, states that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the reflection of that visible, brilliant brightness of God. He goes on in that verse to say he's the exact character or imprint of God. I mean, we just run out of superlatives when it comes to Jesus. Jesus created the entire universe and cosmos by the word of his power, and he sustains he breathes life into all of us here and listening in at this very second, this very moment, by the same word of his power. He has to speak for you to stay alive and for you to worship him this day. It feels like we would just run out with all the superlatives for Jesus, but Hebrews is just getting started. He is just getting started. And he exalts and revolves around the supremacy of Jesus, not just in this chapter, but chapter 3 and 5 and 7, which we will review very quickly. But the supremacy of Jesus is absolute. And at the outset, I do want to tell you that if you put, if you put, or you actually believe or feel or behave in any way that any other name belongs next to supremacy, like your name or my name. If you believe that any race or ethnicity or tribe or culture or nation belongs anywhere near the word supremacy, this actually explains the fall. Why we all ache and groan and why there's so much frustration and death. It explains the fall and explains all the fallouts ever since. 
supremacy. Absolute singular supremacy. It's only suited for Jesus. It's only suited for Jesus. I mean, I'm just going to begin with history real quick. I think it's beyond dispute that in terms of influence, fame, in terms of how many people still uh, revere or worship and bend the knee to Jesus, uh, Jesus has got to be at least top three. According to this historian by the name of Philip Schaff, here's his observation. Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. According to Schaff, he occupies supremacy in history, but at least top three if you are secular or you're skeptical today. But going to the scriptures now, the preacher begins with, Jesus is superior to even the angels, superior to angels. Angels. Now, these are awesome, powerful, intelligent, but created beings. And anyone who gets into the presence of an angel, I mean, if literally, physically, an angel were to manifest itself at this moment, I assure you, there would be sheer terror, panic. We'd be overwhelmed. And most people who get into the presence of an angel, they're tempted to worship them. This is exactly what Apostle John did who wrote several books in the Bible. And the close of the Bible is the book of Revelation. There we read in chapter 19, And the angel said to me, to Apostle John, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, these same awesome, powerful, terrifying, overwhelming creatures to which Apostle John was tempted to worship, in Isaiah chapter 6, they themselves are overwhelmed. They are terrified. And it actually reads that the angels in the courts of heaven Near the holiness of God, the chant goes, holy, holy, holy. The song or the anthem, one of them will be, holy, holy, holy. Thrice fold in superlative terms. It kind of means, if I could best describe it, the otherworldly, just God, you are other category, a completely different level. And Isaiah chapter 6 actually reads that the angels themselves grew or had two extra pairs of wings to cover themselves. There the angels themselves are overwhelmed and terrified. Back to the book of Revelation. Angels are sinless created beings and they react this way in the holiness of God. Human beings, all of us who are sinful, flawed through and through... 
with a lot of goodness and brilliance as well. It says we're going to scream for the mountaintops, for the mountains to shatter and crumble on top of us because we're going to need cover. We're going to need cover. Did you know that it's actually a gift? Here's the gift. That according to chapter 4, verse 12 of this letter, this sermon, the word of God is living and active, piercing and discerning, cutting down to the deepest intents and thoughts of your heart. And the word of God can expose you and make you feel naked. The word of God is inherently this supernaturally powerful. And when you come to life, you actually feel exposed and naked. And when you do, it's actually a gift because you can begin to seek cover now. Right here, right now. Before the very one that the angels tremble and feel like they're going to fall apart before. Now we get to verse 6 here. The same angels who overwhelm and terrify us are overwhelmed and terrified by God. But in verse 6, what does the preacher say? Let all, verse 6, all God's angels worship him. Even the angels are worshiping Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus. I mean, I know we've had a lot of downtime, and I'm sure you've caught up on a lot of shows, but the Disney Channel carried two seasons of The Mandalorian, The Mandalorian. And on the final scene of season two, Star Wars fans just lost their minds and geeked out, freaked out, because there are these ominous robots called dark troopers and they're more powerful than regular stormtroopers and at the end it seems like doom is near but a curious character shows up with a green lightsaber sorry if you haven't watched it this is on you it's been out for like two years <laughs> luke skywalker shows up luke skywalker shows up and it's just it's just like this effortless obliteration in particular, like one, he doesn't even use his lightsaber. He just goes like this. He just goes like this. And the thing just kind of like completely is destroyed. The angels who worship Jesus in verse 7 and in verse 14, here's what it says. Uh, the angels are actually messengers and servants of Jesus. They're your Jedi masters. They're these awesome, powerful characters. But there's someone even more superior who sends them, and this is above my pay grade right now because I was just struck by it, but I don't have the intelligence or the study or the time to share with you. It actually says in verse 7 and 14, those who are saved, Jesus sends his messengers who are angels to minister to you, to serve you. Oh, the supremacy of Jesus, superior to angels. Second, superior to Moses, Moses, chapter 3, the first three verses. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. 
As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Devoted, Old Testament-minded, religious Jews, you could not fathom someone with more glory than Moses. Moses, the mediator, the leader, who brought about the most miraculous salvation episode in all the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament. Who can be more glorious than Moses? Jesus can. Jesus is. Here's why. It says Moses is in the house. He's a servant inside the house of God. Now the house of God is not this auditorium. It's not a physical building. It means the people of God. So Moses' function, as great and glorious as he is, is to serve people of God once you're inside the house. But what is Jesus? Jesus is not a servant inside the house. He's the son of the builder. He's the owner of the house. He is over the people of God. I can put it maybe this way. Once you get inside and belong to the people of God, Moses is among the greatest servants, but Jesus is the only one that can get you inside the house of God. This is why Psalm chapter 84 begins with saying, my soul longs and my soul faints. He's talking about homesickness here. This really deep, nagging, haunting ache. Like your heart senses and feels, this world is just not enough. It's not my home. Something is missing. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say this. Better is one day in your courts, you see, in the house of God, than thousands elsewhere. My soul longs and faints and aches for something. I long for home and One day, one day, just one split moment, just in the courtyard, the gardens of the house of God is going to just far, far outweigh thousands elsewhere. Now here is the incomparable glory of Jesus versus Moses. Moses and all the saints can never get you inside to the courts. Moses and all the biblical saints, no matter how much you want to be like them, you try to copy them, you have applications from them, you're inspired from them, good, that's good. But just being like the saints of old will never actually make you into a person of God. You'll never get inside the house. Only the Son can invite you with your name on it, call you, by your name and get you and usher you in and say, I've got a room reserved for you in my father's house. Do you know this son of the owner goes on in chapter two to say, then you become my brother and sister and I'm going to brag about you forever. And my father who is God will become yours. Superior to Moses who is a servant inside the house of God, but Jesus is the son of the owner. And in his house, there is the deepest, truest, replenishing, satisfying rest that begins even right now as we take the Sabbath and worship Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the best rest you can ever have, the rest that your soul so needs, because all of us, overcompensate and continue to work too hard because you know something is so wrong. But when you meet the son, 
He invites and gets you into the people of God. Oh, there is a superior rest that begins. Jesus, superior to angels. Jesus, superior to Moses. Last character. Superior to Melchizedek. Superior to Melchizedek. Now you see, I'm looking out at the audience to see if anyone is excited by that. I don't think I saw one. Shame on you. No one is getting juiced up about this character. Well, it's because he's very mysterious. I think he pops in and out of Genesis 14. That's about it. That's it. Why does this preacher pick up on Melchizedek, recall him, and elevate him? I know you guys know a lot about Mandalorian. I included, we know a lot about some Netflix shows. You don't just know the major characters, you know every minor character. In fact, you've read every blog, you know too much about the minor characters. You know all the drama, you know all the details. And can I just remind you that seemingly brief, once-in-a-moment minor characters in the scriptures and all the connections and all the drama and details that may surround that story is actually there to reveal Jesus better to you, if this interests you. We hear Christ Central, prize and value the word of God as the authority above all, but what I also think it's the most beautiful story ever written. No human beings could just put this together because it all somehow marvelously culminates and pieces together around the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Here is Melchizedek who served his purpose. Look at chapter 7, verses 1, 2, and 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 1, Melchizedek was so great in his day, Father Abraham paid tribute to him, honored him, and gave him a tithe. Abraham, after waging war to get his nephew Lot back, on his way back, met Melchizedek, and tithe to him as what? Priest of the Most High. He is the first priest to appear in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 2. Mel, uh, the name of Melchizedek actually literally means king of righteousness. Zedek, righteousness in the Old Testament. Then he goes on to say, he also was the king of what? Salem. Salem, of course not Salem, the witch trials. Salem, which became Jerusalem, in fact. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Salem is a variant of the word shalom. So Melchizedek, the first high priest, was also a king. His name means king of righteousness. And he was the king of Jerusalem. Shalom, which is a variant of peace. No other figure until Jesus Christ held both offices at the same time. Priest and king. Look at verse 3. Without genealogy, 
father or mother. No beginning or end. You see, Melchizedek served as a priest of the Most High. He came and went. We don't have any records of him because it signifies to us he was eternal. In some way, his priesthood, in some way, his order, in some way, his legacy was eternal. Of course, pointing toward Jesus, who is eternal, righteous, peaceful king and priest forever. And then we close in verse 3. It says, Melchizedek uh, resembled the Son of God to come. He resembled the Son of God to come. I like to put it this way. Uh, there was really no other greater purpose for Melchizedek's ex uh, existence, and listen close, than to serve as a resemblance toward the Son of God to come. Remember, this is a brief pop in and out character. And why does now hear the preacher all over chapter 7, it's riddled with the mention of Melchizedek. Then in chapter 5, verse 6, also chapter 5, verse 10, also in chapter 6, verse 20. Preachers, of course, have the liberty to be repetitive for emphasis and for flow. Why again is this one-time character seemingly so minor, emphasized, become so major and dominant in this preacher's sermon inspired by the Holy Spirit? Simply again because of verse 3. Because he resembled the Son of God to come. My friends, do you know that no matter what you do in life, no matter how much money you make, no matter how many children you raise, how many houses you own, how many accolades and fame comes your way, nothing compares to the significance of a life that served as a resemblance of Jesus. Do you not know yet there is no greater, higher eulogy that could be ever given at your funeral? No one's really going to care about the things you produce. If someone could stand up and honestly and sincerely say, I remember so-and-so. And one of the things that will never leave my heart or soul is that that person served as a sign, reminded me, resembled to me something of Jesus Christ. You know, Christ Central exists to see lives change. Christ Central exists to see life transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and every Sunday, one of the greatest things I look forward to all the time is not just here and now, but before and after, because I see walking, talking, living exhibitions Signs that point to Jesus Christ in their faithfulness, in their service, in their sacrifice, in their joy. Why? Because they are serving and building up the very house of God, the people of God. Oh, so far. Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is superior to the glory of Moses. Jesus is superior to the king of righteousness and peace who was the only character who held a dual office of son of the priest, most high. Jesus is superior to him because he's a king and priest forever. 
I don't think it's a stretch then for me to say, Jesus is also better than if you got all the angels combined. I don't know how many there are, but there's a lot. Would it be a stretch for me to say, and for us to worship him a little better today, for us to think and consider, Jesus is better than all the saints combined. Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Peter, James, and John. Jesus is better than kings, priests, messengers. And if you put them all together on shore like the Avengers did at that final scene, and you combine all of their forces, all of their creativity, all of their power, all of their majesty, singularly and supremely, they would still stand. Jesus Christ alone above it all. The supremacy of Jesus. The absolute supremacy of Jesus. Now, I could easily stop here. Some of you are wishing, please stop here. But Hebrews doesn't. Hebrews doesn't. Because there's this one more thing that he's supreme at. He's the best at giving grace. Jesus is better than anybody at giving grace. Superior grace. Chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How is the supremacy of Jesus sealed eternally? How is supremacy only suited for him? Why is it only he can handle it well? It's because you got to see what he did with it. Do you know what Jesus did when all of his supremacy? No one fell lower. No one fell harder. No one suffered like he did. He came down to taste death. The author of life tasted death for everyone. You know, worldly supremacy basically operates like this. You should work harder for me. You should bleed more for me. You should give up more for me. Where's the blood, sweat, and tears? You know why? You give your life for me because I'm better than you. Do you know what Jesus did in all of his supremacy? He says, I'm going to give up my life for yours. This is how the supremacy of Jesus works. Takes me a really long time to learn this. The supremacy of Jesus is, look at how he suffered and died for you. You know, it's been a long, right, brutal, at least 18 months. Because it exposes so many things that we just try to keep at bay. Uh, I would call it 18 months has been a 
constant, varied reminders and realities of the thing that hurts us most, the thing that haunts us most, the thing that really, really you want to avoid, death. Isolation, separation. Illnesses, not just COVID, illnesses. You can't even get into the hospital with a severe illness. The contagious threats of it, the precautions, the anxieties, the fears and frustrations that all of life was just flipped upside down. Things at home, now you're like stuck, you know, stuck. You can't go out, can't work, you can't go to You're just stuck and like you turn around like, whoa, wow, I, I didn't know this is uh, what my health is really like, what my relationships are really like. It reminds us that things are not as good as they appear. They're falling apart. And for these last 18 months, as we go through so many different shapes and forms of grief and anger and loss upon loss, I'm so glad that we get to worship a God who is supreme. But he's the best at giving grace to. And on September 21st, my man, a good, good brother, Daniel Dulas Cho, I asked for his permission, fellow pastor here in L.A., shared this about September 21st, just two weeks ago. Quite a day for him. Quote, Nobody wants to bury a loved one on their birthday. Nobody wants to make a joyful day into a sad and mournful day. Nobody wants to remember a day of life as a day of death. It is the one day that I wanted to avoid to have her funeral service. While sad, painful, and mournful, the gospel helped and allows me to see this day more beautifully. September 21st from this year and on won't just be a day where I celebrate where I remember, sorry, where, where I remember my mom's death and my, and my birth. Rather, it'll be a day where I celebrate my birth and my mom's birth into eternity. Only possible through the work of Jesus Christ. Closes at the end. Love you, mom. I miss you so much. But I will see you soon. As we always said to each other, Bye for now. Bye for now. Who gets to consider and call a burial service and celebrate it even like a birthday? Who goes around saying, bye for now, but you really believe it. It's just bye for now. You know, Apostle Paul says, you know, Death for Christian people who have the supremacy of Jesus, but he's better at grace too. Here's how we die. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Please don't read into this and try to be like subhuman or superhuman and just not human at all by thinking, oh, that means we shouldn't grieve at all. No, that's not what he said at all. Some of us don't grieve and weep enough. There ought to be, of course, there is mourning and tears and heartbreak. But he says, you cannot grieve as those who have no hope. Have no hope. You know why? 
Because death, death itself now, the most bitter, fatal, the most scariest thing you could ever really face has lost its sting. It's like just falling asleep. It's like just falling asleep. It's like the loved ones you lost. It's just bye for now. Because you have a God who can put death to death. Ah, but much, much sweeter and much better. You have a God full of grace. He is gracious. Who says, I'm going to get you up too. I'm going to taste death for you. I'm going to take the grave. I'm going to take the eternal punishment. I'm going to take the terror. I'm going to take the horror. Greatness and grace. Supremacy and sympathy next week. We need both. Jesus brought both. Jesus brought both. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, this day as we worship you and respond to your word, we say, Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, superior than all, the name above every other name, you deserve and you are worthy and we want you to capture all of our hearts, all of our imaginations, all of our aspirations, and even all and swallow up all the regrets, the guilt and the shame. And even while you deserve eternal glory and honor and praise, oh Lord, we thank you most of all that you gave up your life for me. You come down even now and give grace. Nobody is better at it. May you, oh Lord, by your spirit, pour out grace right where we need it in continual supply. Hear us, O Lord Jesus, as we continue to sing and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.